Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Forget Iowa, Texas is first now. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, and he's Jeremy Wallace. You can find me at quorumreport.com. And Jeremy's work, of course, appears at houstonchronicle.com. And you can check out his free newsletter, which he pumps out every afternoon. And I'm, I'm pushing to have it be seven days a week. But for now, every weekday, if, every week, he's, if you could see the look on his face, it is one of those, why don't you go jump off a bridge faces. <laughs> um, Jeremy, you can find it uh, on your Twitter page. The link is right there. It's your pinned tweet. And you can find Jeremy uh, online there at Jeremy S. Wallace. And uh, I'm at Scott Braddock. Everyone should follow us. I was introduced uh, as... Uh, something of uh, a prolific individual on social media when I was on the Yolitics podcast here in DFW, where I'm reporting from today, uh, Jason Wheeler and Jason Whiteley at WFAA Television, they asked me if I would do their podcast. I said, well, yeah, but I mean, I'm still going to do our podcast. And you know what they do, Jeremy, is it's kind of cool. They go to a brewery somewhere and they, you know, get some micro brew, get some beer and talk politics. And I said, that's fine. But on our show, on the Texas Take, we're a hard liquor show, right? <laughs> this is, we are real grizzled journalists here, capital journalists, right? Not that they're not real journalists, but it's a different thing. We're trying to we're trying to sort through everything that happened in this insane week, and when I say insane week, I mean every week in Texas, right? Let's take you down now to Eagle Pass. Jeremy made the trek where the blistering heat in the desert along the Rio Grande, and this is the place now where presidential campaigns have to go if they're running as Republicans. Um, and they have to go there first. It's almost like they have to go there first, Jeremy, as you've made the point. They have to be there before Iowa, yeah. before New Hampshire, You know, the first uh, nominating states. You have to have the Rio Grande as the backdrop if you are running for the GOP nomination nationally, don't you? Yeah, it's crazy. It's like we just had Nikki Haley made the run down here back in April. Uh, obviously, Ron DeSantis comes down here. Like this is his first official visit to the state of Texas. He's done some fundraisers, but this mm -hmm. was his first public event that oh, he right. does. And he pits also Eagle Pass. So why are they picking Eagle Pass? Maverick County, which has a whopping 600 GOP primary voters in any given year, you know, if you're lucky, uh, 600 voters. Do they, are they worried about them? Uh, maybe not so much. Uh, one, not only is there only 600 voters, but the last time that county voted for a Republican president, Herbert Hoover. Okay. All the Herbert Hoover fans who are listening today, boom, there you get your call out. But yeah, you, <laughs> but, you brought you brought the history once again. There you go. But but, but so so but why why here? It's like oh, look, this, we're a prop. We're a prop for the people up in New Hampshire and the people up in Iowa, yeah. and for a good reason. You know, they expect these candidates to come down here to talk about the fentanyl because uh, the fentanyl mm -hmm. in those communities, it, they're obvious, it's obviously ripping apart the entire nation. Yeah. But particularly in those areas, they want to hear these Republican presidential candidates 
you know, point to the border and talk about how they're going to get tough on these people on the other side. Is it possible, and just call me a cynic if you want, is it possible that because these people don't really know anything about the border, the reason so many of them are ending up in Eagle Pass is because they saw it on TV. They saw other politicians go to Eagle Pass because they could go anywhere, right? They could go to El Paso. They could go to uh, Brownsville. They could go to Laredo. They could go to any of the many towns along our border, which is the longest state border with Mexico. They've got all kinds of options. But Ron DeSantis went to Eagle Pass, Asa Hutchinson, Eagle Pass, uh, and Nikki Haley, like you said, Eagle Pass. And you go, wait a minute, why are y'all all going there? Oh, it's a feedback loop. They, they, it looked good on TV, so they're going to go do it too. Well, and also, like, you know, it's also, I would argue, maybe the easiest place to get to the border from San Antonio. You fly into San Antonio, you can get over there in a couple hours, boom, yeah. all done. Mm-hmm. Versus, like, if you go to McAllen, you got to charter a flight. You're not right. going to, you know, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be harder to get there. Uh, you, it, it, as long as you have a personal plane that you can kind of get mm-hmm. to, a, you know, the airport or a flight that you're going to take down there, that's fine. But yeah, in terms of like, if you want to do it cheap and you want to <laughs> get the, the backdrop, Eagle Pass, but of course, like, and there's a reason Eagle Pass <laughs> is the zone right now. It's like, yeah. I've written about this a lot over the last year, you know, the, the, the amount of traffic coming through Eagle Pass, people trying to cross the border there, is astronomical. This is not like the Texas I grew up in. We weren't used to seeing that as the top spot for people to cross. But the last year, that has all changed. You know, Venezuela and Cuban you know, migrants particularly have really mm. targeted the Eagle Pass Del Rio sector as the number one place. We're now seeing more border crossings in that section than we used to see over a couple year period of time there. It's like, it's really outrageous. Like, you know, it's like yeah. we, we had 50,000 people cross there at one point, you know, mm-hmm. that, that were, you know, at least encounters that the federal government assessed. We used to, that that's like a three or four year period of time, it, you mm-hmm. know, back in the 80s or 90s. It's like it just shows you like there's a surge going through there and it's become the national point in the place for Republicans to make the case that Joe Biden, since he got elected, look what's happened. That's why you see all this focus on, you know, hit that area. That's why Greg Abbott's putting, you know, razor wire on the banks of the river that he's putting his, you know, you know, you know, squad cars next to each other as the curtain of steel or whatever he called yeah. it. You know, it's like it's always Eagle Pass because that has become the new hot spot under the Biden administration. They make their case for president by making outrageous statements. Uh, And this is, of course, in the era of the politics of Donald Trump. So let's listen to Ron DeSantis try to do it. He was there talking and you were at this press conference. And you'll hear from two different events uh, here in a second. Um, He's talking about the idea that you've got to use, and this was what made the headlines, got to use deadly force against some of these folks who are trying to cross uh, there in that sector. These guys and the cartels, they can cut through the really fortified steel beams. And I'm just thinking to myself, you spend all this money on that and you just let them cut through with impunity and do it. And so, you know, I think you need adequate rules of engagement so that, I mean, if someone was breaking into your house, you would repel them with the use of force, right? But yet if they have drugs, these backpacks, and they're going in and they're cutting through uh, an enforced structure, we're just supposed to let them in? You know, I say use force to repel them. If you do that one time, they will never do it again. Of course you use deadly force. I mean, how would you let somebody, would you let somebody just break into your house and do you harm? No, and, and I could tell you in Texas they wouldn't, they wouldn't do that. Unless you made an outrageous statement and you spoke with that voice 
in that tone, no one would remember what you said. Uh, I, I was at the fundraiser uh, for him in uh, – it was a fundraiser for the Dallas County Republican Party uh, and Ron DeSantis spoke. And Jeremy, when people talk about a um, – I'm trying to remember what uh, folks nationally called it. I think they were calling it a charisma deficit with him. They uh, One person said it was an alleged charisma deficit. I met the man. It's not alleged. He, there's there's no charisma. He no Rick Perry. Okay, I'm just comparing him to other politicians I've met, including Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, um, Republicans like Dan Patrick have charisma, right? He surely does not. Um, he also talked about giving states the right to deport undocumented people. It's violating our sovereignty and it's killing Americans. And so, of course, it's a violation. I think the, the state of Texas has a right to declare an invasion. I think states have a right to come in and help uh, repel the invasion. Certainly, when I'm president, your, your state people here will be able to deport across the border 100%. Jeremy, I want to get your uh, take on what the reaction was to some of these comments, but I, I want to add this as well. Um, th this is true, right? That, of course, the border cosplay is not complete until you run and go say all the same stuff on Fox News Channel. My view as commander in chief would be is we have to have appropriate rules of engagement to say if you're cutting through a border wall on sovereign U.S. territory and you're trying to poison Americans, uh, you're going to end up stone cold dead. We are not going to put up with this right now. The drug cartels control our border. Uh, it's open season. Texas is doing a lot to stand up. We appreciate that. We've sent people from Florida. Joe Biden and the federal government are MIA. You're not just going to be dead. You're going to be stone cold dead. You're going to be the deadest you can be. In fact, we're going to shoot you and then throw your body in the river and make sure everyone in Mexico can see that you are dead. Jeremy, it's just the use of language that is meant to recreate the kind of magic within the Republican Party that Donald Trump was able to create in 2016 to be successful, to become the nominee, and then to be the president, what they want to do, and I'm going to get to another reaction from another prominent Republican in just a bit, what they want to do is get that energy uh, that Trump brought without the Trump baggage. Yeah, exactly. Like, how do you how do you out Trump Trump on the border? Right. You know, that's what Ron DeSantis is trying to do. And and look at the timing of when he's doing this. Like he's down here in Eagle Pass in the same section of the river that Governor Greg Abbott is about to put this floating buoy system into the water to stop people from swimming. There's you know, like I wrote about this, you know, this weekend where he's going to have this thousand foot. Uh, barrier of buoys where like swimmers who try to come across will be impeded from doing so. And if anything happens where like they start drowning or something, rescue crews aren't going to be able to get to them. Uh, so I talked to the you know, Amnesty International USA and they're like, this is a monument to cruelty. And I think that phrasing is important because like you, you combine it with what DeSantis is doing and talking about shooting people stone cold dead coming mm -hmm. across. You have Abbott, you know, maybe threatening people's lives if they try to swim across. Mm -hmm. And what do you have? You have this combination of like this that tough talk that Trump kind of was getting us to mm -hmm. of like and, and the crowds love it. You know, the, the hardcore Republican crowds are just like they're applauding these things. They want to hear that. They want, you know, they've completely taken the humanity out of the piece mm -hmm. of like right. these are literally refugees coming from a socialist government in Venezuela or Cuba 
trying to come to America and like we want them dead. <laughs> it's kind of hard not to like, you know, you, you can't sugarcoat this. This is yep. literally what we're, we're talking about. These people dying mm-hmm. on their journey to become, you know, to seek safety for themselves. It's kind of a, a, a a, a reverse Ellis Island, if you would, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, you know, we don't want you're tired, you're sick, you're poor, get the heck away or you'll die is kind yeah. of the new message that has to be said, you know, again, an extension of Trump who was yeah. sitting there calling, saying that there were murders and rapists coming across. He took right. away the, the legitimacy and the viability of the, the maybe potentially legal asylum claim these people had and just decided, no, no, they're all criminals. And so that is the message that DeSantis and Abbott are both kind of running off of. Like these guys must all be terrible. So shooting a few or making a few drown is probably not going to be a big deal. Right. And it's conflating uh, the drug cartels, the human traffickers with the people you're talking about, these asylum seekers who are you know, coming from some of the worst conditions on the planet. They're being pushed out of their home countries. I mean, if those things weren't going on there, that you wouldn't want to leave your home if it was safe for you and your family. You wouldn't want to leave your home uh, unless you had these dire economic situations. This is, you know, something that goes back way before Trump. I mean, Trump was just the best at it if you will. Uh, but I'm thinking the Republican Party now, which, it, it, you know, decades ago did not have this attitude at all. It was George W. Bush's position that this was the quote, family values don't end at the Rio Grande. He would talk about how we need these people in the United States. We need these people here in Texas. The fact that we have an elastic workforce of people who can come into Texas when there are jobs in agriculture, hospitality, construction, et cetera, and then they go back, go back, just go back to Mexico when the job isn't available. People could move back and forth. It was part of what Republicans talked about, a Texas economic miracle. It was a big piece of that. Uh, But over the last two decades or so, that all shifted when George W. Bush tried to push comprehensive immigration reform, and he was seen as an apostate within his own party as those conservative members of Congress and Republican activists who didn't want to see anything that they considered to be, quote, amnesty, which the, the last actual amnesty in the United States was signed by that liberal Democrat Oh, wait, no, no. It was signed by Ronald Reagan the last time there was amnesty in this country. They accused Bush of trying to offer amnesty to undocumented people. They turned on him, and they've just been turning up the heat on this ever since. It turned into a bumper sticker thing when Governor Perry was running for re-election in 2006 and in 2010. He spent a little bit of money. Uh, he, he, he spent out of the state budget what we refer to in Austin as budget dust, little amounts on border security. Um now, Jeremy, it's a $6 billion bumper sticker. It's not really keeping any people out of the United States. It's, it's this whole thing about trying to look tough without really accomplishing anything, conflating the folks um, who are uh, the, you know, the arm-to-the-teeth cartel members with people who are just trying to get here for a better life. And think of it this way. They have militarized the border such that the only folks who can match us for uh, firepower – are the drug cartels and the human traffickers. Everybody else who's just coming here for a job has to turn to those people to try to get across the border. They're just making it worse. It's not even that they're not doing anything good. They're making it worse. Well, and, and, and you know, it's a very important point to, you know, make the case that, look, 
90% of the you know, drug seizures or drug issues are coming through the actual legal ports of entry. You know, that's where they're going. It's like the, the, the places like, you know, you know, on the riverbanks of Eagle Path, those are people who are, you know, seeking refuge in the U.S. You know, that's what you're typically looking at there. Uh, people who don't understand, like, all the rule changes for people. You know, like, again, look, look if, if you've been cutting through the jungle for the last, you know, six you know months or whatever it's taken you to get to that border, you may not know what the procedure is. It's very confusing right now if you're trying to exercise – your actual legitimate asylum claim. And it's like, so you thought you were supposed to come here, but then there was an app that you're supposed to fill out. Uh, but if I go to the border, isn't there something like that they have to do? It's like, it's very confusing right now. And so, so the parts outside of the points, you know, ports of entry, you know, look, there are, there certainly are some drugs going back and forth, but the primary, you know, target for those you know cartels is to get it through the ports of entry because fentanyl is so hard to detect it's so small and it's so hard to kind of distinguish from anything else that you can hide it just about any place and border patrol will tell you they found it in so many different places so far but there's always a better mousetrap that you know mm -hmm. everybody's trying to kind of figure out how do you get more of this stuff from getting into the u.s and off the street they all want to talk tough and they're all trying to get those uh, supporters of former President Trump. And would you look at this? Uh, look who has a uh, DeSantis for President baseball cap now. It's arch conservative Texas State Representative Matt Schaefer from Tyler. All right, I'm going to say what a lot of you are thinking. What good does it do for Donald Trump to win the Republican primary if he can't win the swing states? Well, Ron DeSantis can get us the results that we need in the White House and he can win the swing states. Ron DeSantis has a path to victory in the general election. That's why I'm supporting Ron DeSantis. So this is not a liberal. This is not a moderate. This is not anyone that you could consider anything other than a rock-ribbed conservative and someone who a lot of people maybe haven't heard of Matt Schaefer because they don't pay attention to all of the state representatives. And a lot of folks don't even know that state representatives are not congressmen. <laughs> Not this audience, but a lot of people don't know that. Um, but he's certainly someone who's thought of as a sort of a thought leader, uh, you know, amongst conservative lawmakers, right? Um, and he's he's in full recognition that Trump can probably not win the general election. But I'm here to tell you, Jeremy, he is in the minority for among all the people I talk to who are Republican uh, activists and voters in this state. I think there was a point where Republicans around here were kind of starting to get tired of Trump and get sick of Trump. And I think the thing – this is, seems obvious to me um, – the thing that has them back in his corner is that he's being prosecuted, is that he's yeah. actually – he's been indicted over this uh, situation in Mar-a-Lago. And whereas I kind of thought that things were starting to you know, uh, taper off a little bit with Trump right around the time that you went to that uh, rally in Waco – uh, when he was kicking off his campaign there on the anniversary of the Waco siege during that during that week when it happened, um, I thought things were I thought it was kind of starting to dissipate, and now it seems like Trump is coming on strong again. And I don't know if words from Schaefer or folks like him are going to make any difference. Yeah, it's interesting. Two thoughts on that. One, you know, uh, I saw Matt Schaefer and talked to him a little bit down there in Eagle Pass. He was down there for some of those events. Uh, so too was uh, Chip Roy. 
you know, the congressman from the Austin area. And uh, I saw Lamar Smith, former congressman from San Antonio, was also down there. So you can see DeSantis is definitely picking up some people who have some good political you know, and Republican bone, particularly, to kind of make the case for him. But like, but like you said, it's like there's something happening right now. And I think, you know, like that tiredness of Trump, you know, it's not just those, you know, uh, the charges brought against him, but I think now, particularly with all these Supreme Court decisions, it's kind of giving this exclamation point to maybe the number one success of the Trump administration in the eyes of a lot of Republicans, which was he was able to remake the Supreme Court. Everything that just happened this week with the the the, the case on affirmative action, uh, you know, ending Biden's you know loan forgiveness program, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, all of this is coming from you know okay. Donald Trump's appointments. He appointed three people to the, to the Supreme Court, and he's now going to ride this for a while. It's like he's already getting Republicans kind of rallying around this thing, and he himself is starting to kind of you know see what I did. It's like I think mm-hmm. he's going to be able to use that to kind of withstand you know some of I, if you can call it pressure from DeSantis I'm not even sure if it's that much yet at this point yeah, it's not uh, right. but just it doesn't feel like you know it's weird I, I'm you know man I I hate to say that DeSantis is starting to feel like Fred Thompson to me you know it's like he's the guy in, <laughs> in 2007 yeah. who oh, everybody's yeah. like oh he's gonna come in and you know I mean, in, in uh, 2012 where everybody said yeah. was gonna come in like a house of fire and really you know get this whole thing going in his favor right. and become the nominee and of mm. course you know, he went to the top of the polls and was gone like before you could even you know say Fred Thompson <laughs> yes before you could say he was really good in hunt for red October yeah, exactly. Um, Him he, and Scott Walker that year were way ahead of everybody, and everybody's like, "Who are those people again?" And yeah. I'm starting to feel like DeSantis, like he just was an early choice, um, and like he hasn't, he's just not exciting. Like you said, it's just like, yeah. he's not able to make the case that not only you know, it's sad. It's like a, a politician told me this years ago, and I said, "Like you know, you're just you know trying to be popular here. You're just trying to, mm-hmm. to win some popularity that's contest. Yep. And he goes, that's exactly what it is, Jeremy. This is the biggest popularity contest around. <laughs> you right. just want people to like you so they'll vote for you. <laughs> and I'm like, it's, that's exactly what it is. Trump is just vastly more popular than mm-hmm. Ron DeSantis. You know, maybe if Ron DeSantis had a longer runway, if he had been yeah. doing this for longer and people knew who the heck he was. But the first impression is a kind of a scowly, you know, non-smiling awkward <laughs> kind of dude who's just yeah. not really connecting with voters on a mass level right now yeah and and i, w- I will say that uh, what you said about the supreme court is key because in and i'm thinking of the attitudes of texas republican uh, voters right now and i mean those who will participate in the primary not not the november republicans but the march republicans um they were very fired up to get conservative justices on the Supreme Court, and then for the Republicans who are those who only vote in November, they could justify their vote for Trump by pointing to the court, right? They would say, I mean, there are other things that I don't like about Trump, but we are going to see multiple chances to put justices on that court during his uh, term. And so we've got, you know, we cannot let the Democrats do that. We cannot let, you know, we can't let Hillary Clinton be the one to nominate those justices. 
Yeah, I'm glad you bring that up because I had this flashback to 2018 in Brownwood, Texas with Ted Cruz. And that's exactly the case he was making. Here he was, you know, telling people he's going to support this arch rival from 2016 who, who like was just so rude and insensitive to his wife and to his family. And here, you know, you know, Ted Cruz was telling me that, like, you know, he's, he supports Trump. He's going to support him. Not that he agrees with everything he did, does, but, you know, or says, but what he has accomplished. And the number one thing out of his mouth was the Supreme Court and the judiciary. And that's the case for a lot of Republican voters. They have trained their universe that the court like, you know, is incredibly important. You want to vote for somebody to get the Democrats just haven't been as good as getting that message out. And you yep. saw that in 2016, because in 2016, you had so many people go, oh, I'm not so sure about Hillary. It's like, well, mm-hmm. if you don't vote for Hillary and it means Ruth Bader Ginsburg's replacement is, you know, Neil Gorsuch. Right. What's your choice then? They don't think that way. The Republicans do. And that is why you had three Republican conservative justices added to the court. This is why you have uh, such tension in the country right now, such opposition to a lot of the decisions that are being made by the court because the court was forged from a previous majority. And the last time that happened in the United States in this sort of, in pretty close to this kind of way was the Dred Scott decision. Which led to the Civil War, all right. So I'm not going to. I'm not saying that's going to happen, but um, there is precedent for what's going on, and I, and I think it's very important to point out that on the conservative side, not only have they trained voters to think, look, even if I hate the candidate, I still need a Republican to be the person to choose those who are going to be on the federal bench. That's there for sure. They also have an apparatus to have a bunch of those judges just ready to go. Yeah. You know, they have the Federalist Society. They have. A, there's nothing even close to that on the liberal side. They may have some little groups that I haven't even heard the names of, but everybody knows the Federalist Society and what they're all yep. about, or First Liberty and what they're all about, which is you know, getting justices on the courts, putting and putting – think of it this way. Think about the kind of tension it's going to lead to. It's bad enough now that so many people are upset about these decisions from the Supreme Court. They spent the entire Trump administration putting young conservatives on courts all over the country. Yep, That's your pipeline for the judicial branch of government. For the next couple of decades, that's yeah, what's going to be going on. Yeah, there's a short list of ten Republican, you know, potential, you know, replacements to Clarence Thomas already written down, ready to go. Right. Do you think there's a, a Democratic list of ten potential replacements that you know everybody in the party already knows? No. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, it's like well, it's, the Republicans are ready for this. They they built this. This is like Trump was given a list and he was just working off the list. Uh, and so like Kavanaugh's up next. All right. Let's go with Kavanaugh. <laughs> you know, he just was working off the list with, that was given to him by all those Republican conservative, right. you know, think tanks out there. And the Democrats just don't have that. They don't mm-hmm. have that same kind of like, you know, concern and, and push on that issue. You know, so you kind of go back and like imagine if Barack Obama convinces Ruth Bader Ginsburg to mm-hmm. retire and mm-hmm. that so he could replace him, you know, her before that happened. You know, it's like that didn't happen, you know, and nor was it a big issue. It's like you didn't feel that pressure out there for that to happen. It's like, but that decision ultimately changed the entire Supreme Court. You know, it's like, and it's really amazing how one thing mm-hmm. like that like puts us in this spot where, yeah. you know, we mentioned the, the, obviously the, the, some of the court decisions this week, you know, the decision 
on you know you know gay rights is yeah. a huge deal. It's like mm-hmm. that. Like what was decided. Absolutely. You know, to allow this woman creating a website to deny working for gay couples is kind of an amazing blowback to what we thought the Supreme Court just ruled. Like the Supreme Court's the one who kind of said you couldn't do that. And now they're saying, yes, yes, uh, on in retrospect, you can do that after all. Yeah. It's like, where does this go next? Where does this court go next on gay rights particularly? It's like, I don't think we're too far away from a challenge to can people who are gay get married? It's like the I, I, here we thought that this thing was over and yeah. like this whole conversation is all new again. Yeah. Well, and think about this. Um, just occurs to me as we're as we're talking. Um, those conservatives who worked for decades uh, to stack the court, quite frankly, um, I think that they were, uh, for all that time, um, they were cultivating the environment uh, for a candidate like Ted Cruz, who also cares about these things. He actually yeah. has a body of work making arguments in front of the Supreme Court and Ken cares a lot about it. They thought they wanted Ted Cruz, but what they got was even better for them. What they got was uh, Trump who doesn't even care about it. He just said, oh, you've got a list. Give me your list. I'll disappoint those people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Cruz would have had thoughts on the list. He probably would have said, yeah, I like this person. Maybe not that person. This person's not conservative enough. I don't know about that person. Trump just copy pasted it into his yeah. appointments. And that was it. Um, speaking of the justice system, do you like that segue, Jeremy? Um, you asked You asked to thank you. You asked DeSantis about the uh, p- you know, potential prosecution of him uh, here in Texas. What was that conversation like? Yeah, it, it, it was kind of. Uh, I thought he was going to have more to say on it, but he clearly <laughs> didn't. <laughs> Let's listen. Here's Jeremy asking Ron DeSantis about the sheriff in Bear County wanting to go after him for taking those migrants from San Antonio and shipping them off to the East Coast. Sheriff Salazar in Bear County has filed charges against you for shipping migrants to yes, Martha's me. Vineyard. Yes. Uh, are you going to news to me? <laughs> are, are you going to continue to ship migrants from San Antonio to other places? And can you tell us why you decided to use San Antonio as your hub? So uh, we have uh, a program for transport to sanctuary jurisdictions. Uh, it is done by contractors who who take the job, and they are able to do and identify sanctuary jurisdictions as appropriate. Uh, it's not being directed in any one particular part of Texas or Florida or anywhere else. And it's someplace that can be um, done at, at their discretion. And so I think it's been very effective. Uh, and it's something that our legislature is authorized and will continue to be used. In other words, he doesn't really care where the migrants come from. He does. I think he likes the fact that they are from Texas. Uh, and we've seen some of these stories now of people who were uh, shipped from Texas to other places uh, that are just heartbreaking, Jeremy. I mean, look, you had these folks being told that they were uh, going to be guaranteed a job, that they were going to you know, have a safe place to stay. Uh, and after, the, after they've made that terrible journey that you talked about, and then to have everything misrepresented by people who are supposedly representing the governments of either Texas or Florida. Uh, and you have Abbott and DeSantis defending it, by saying that they were doing something good for those people, um, they, these folks end up in uh, in New York, where they caused a, a stress on the system there and a stress on the system in uh, Washington D.C. And Abbott says, "Oh, you know, now they're finally getting a taste of, of what we have to deal with in Texas. Washington D.C. is not dealing with what we deal with in Texas. 
it's a city. We're a state of 31 million people. We actually do have jobs for a lot of those people, a, a ton of jobs for those people. You think about the people who work in the heat, the people who right now, when it's 108 degrees in some places, 105, uh, the, the, the cool spots on the map say 98, there are people working outside right now on Friday afternoon as we are recording the show. They're doing things like working in the fields in agriculture. They're doing things like working construction. And there doesn't seem to be any empathy whatsoever from those in state government. I'll give you another example. The heat in Texas is killing people. We saw a mail worker, uh, a post office delivery uh, worker die in Dallas, where I'm reporting from today. Uh, we've seen the Texas prison system have to defend the fact that there are no air conditioning units in Texas prisons. Not for most of the facilities. They have a room here and there that has an air conditioner, but for the vast majority of them, they do not. Inmates in Texas prisons are literally cooking in those facilities right now. And some people are just finding out about this for the first time. I've had people reach out to me and say, wait a minute, there's no air conditioning in Texas prisons? Well, yeah, that's been the case for decades. That decision was made going back to the 1980s. KXAN reporter Ryan Chandler has been all over the story. He's been a bulldog on it. Check out this report. Those still inside, under this June's scorching Texas sun, are sending desperate letters. These are things that are really, really hard to read as a mother. Yvonne Stone's son, Kevin, wrote her this week, saying he has vomited and passed out. These big, huge concrete and and metal buildings turn into ovens. I mean, Kevin was, he wrote one night, it was 2 o'clock in the morning, because he puts the date and time on his letters a lot of times. And he's like, it's 121 degrees in here. TDCJ tells us protecting employees and inmates is core to their mission, saying they take numerous precautions to lessen the effects of hot temperatures. And these efforts work. Among those efforts, providing respite areas with AC, as well as water, ice, and fans, and prioritizing inmates for cooled cells with a heat sensitivity score. So far this year, They tell us four inmates have required medical attention beyond first aid for heat-related injuries. Nine employees have also suffered heat-related illnesses. Instead of having somebody focus on keeping people cooled down when they're about to stroke out, we should be providing AC so that's not even a problem that we have to worry about. And again, that report from Ryan Chandler, he's also been sharing uh, some uh, emails and letters uh, from prisoners uh, on his social media feed. Uh, And they are just heartbreaking, Jeremy. Look, these are not people who were sentenced to die. We do have a judicial system that uh, provides for specific sentences for people. Um, But I can tell you over the years in covering this issue, because it's not the first time it's come up, but there's certainly more attention now because of just how hot it is. Um, Anytime this would come up. Republican and Democratic lawmakers in Texas would tell me privately that they do agree that there should be air conditioners in prisons. But when they go home and listen and hear from their voters, what they would say, what, what their constituents would say is let them cook. They don't care. They, they, they have no empathy, no sympathy for that whatsoever. They don't see it as any kind of a justified expense. And the Texas prison system is not cheap. Um, this state – as one of the only things that state government really does, you know, in, in effect, is run a giant prison system, one of the biggest prison systems on earth. I believe it costs something like I'm, tra- I'm going off memory now, but I think it's about 
1.5, 1.2 billion per year to run the billion with a B, one billion dollars a year to run the prison system in Texas. But it's done on the cheap, man. There's a lot of people in Texas prisons. I think per inmate, you're talking about something like twenty thousand dollars a year for each person. It's pretty bare bones. So spending the money on an air conditioner wouldn't be that much, but politically it doesn't matter. And I would say one other thing about it, because I heard from folks around the country talking about how uh, Republican leadership in Texas that doesn't have uh, a heart at all because of what they're letting happen with this. The person who oversees the Texas prison system in the Texas Senate is a Democrat. The criminal justice chairman, John Whitmire, who's running for Houston, uh, running for Houston mayor, he is um, the, the point man on these issues and has been for a long time. He's the dean of the Senate. He's been there for decades. He doesn't care either. Um, and, and these are people who could do something about it. They're not going to. Well, what's amazing, you know, uh, Representative Carl Sherman, uh, he had a, uh, you know, he's talked about this issue a lot and he kind of really like stressed it to me. It's like, remember, there are people we have, you know, you know, men and women working in those jails, you know, as employees of the state of Texas, they're in unair conditioned areas doing one of the hardest jobs you can think of. And it's not just there. It's in jails all around the state, too. It's just like we just have this thing where we're, we're we wonder why are we having such a hard time getting people to sign up for, to do that work? It's like, well, because it's 116 degrees in the building and, and they're going to have to you know deal with some of the most stressful moments you can. It's like, of course, they want to get out of there. Of course, there's going to be a worker shortage. It's like, we're, you know, can you imagine telling them, oh, by the way, you know, it's like, you know, that we have a signing bonus or whatever you, you're doing to try to get them in there. Oh, and by the way, there won't be any air conditioning. <laughs> if you told them right. up front, you lose them right away, but you don't tell them up front and they get in there and they're gone within a week of them, mm-hmm. you know, starting to get into your program. So it's not just about the prisoners and the people behind bars, but it's the people yep. we expect to help us watch these people. You know, it's just yeah. why aren't we like maybe kind of caring from them a little bit and making their job maybe a tad less terrible? The people who turn a blind eye to this, and I mean the people who could do something about it, probably did not have the experience that I did growing up as a farm worker in southeast Texas. When I was asked recently, what is the best uh, thing technologically that, that's made your life better? My answer was air conditioning everywhere. You know, as like we didn't have it uh, on the on the tractors that we drove in the field um, when we were out there uh, working the cotton fields, um, working alongside. And this is, goes right to the fact that these people have no empathy for migrants. I grew up working al- alongside undocumented people on our farm. When I was a kid, I mean a little kid, when I was I don't know, f- you know five six years old, during the summertime, my father could hire children from the high or children. He would fire you know he would hire teenagers from the high school to come out and work on the farm. And by the time I was, I don't know, 14 or 15, none of them would do that work anymore. It was all undocumented people. I didn't know that at the time, but I, I do now. Um, and you know that, and I've told this story before, but you know that uh, for cotton, that sunflower, uh, sunflower plants are in the same family as cotton. And so you can't, you, at that time, they may have you know fixed this by now, but you can't spray for it. You have to go chop it down. And so you have to walk the whole field with a machete chopping down the sunflower plant so that you can then harvest the cotton. Do you have any idea what that work is like in 100-degree heat? I could do one row of that maybe, and those migrants would do the entire field, and you would have to, you would have to tell them to stop and drink, drink water. People have no idea how hard these folks work. 
you have seen the controversy this week about construction workers being denied water breaks yep. in this heat. Now, I've covered this for a long time. People are noticing it because it's so hot. They're also noticing it because two stories converged at once. You had a headline on the newspaper, uh, you know, front page about it's going to be 105 degrees in Texas. You also have the headline that says water breaks that are mandatory in places like Austin and Dallas. Well, that the state just said that cities can't have those regulations for water breaks. And I hear people saying, well, does this really happen that people don't stop to drink water? I watched them do it when I was a kid. My father would have to tell them to stop and take a break. Those people work so hard, they work like a piston in an engine. And they don't stop until you let your foot up off the gas. All right? So maybe there should be a mandatory break every four hours so people can get some water and rest for 10 minutes and then go back to back-breaking work for the rest of the day. You were talking earlier, Jeremy, before we started the show that, you know, for us, we have this convenience of, hey, if I have something I have to do outside, I can at least just do it in the morning. Yep. Right. You had to go clear a tree or something on your property. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, I had some trees I had to trim back, but you, you right. have to go out in the dead of night or, you know, early in the morning to kind of get it done, you know, because it's just too hot for people to do that. But and then you think of like, again, where I was in Eagle Pass. You know, mm -hmm. where DeSantis is doing that, you know, it was 116 degrees with that wind coming off the desert, you know, yeah. hitting in the face. It's like, you know, now imagine you're out there having to work. You know, I saw farm yeah. workers as mm -hmm. I'm driving back, you know, working in the fields and, and places. I'm thinking, my God, it's like this is really hard work. And it's like we we have nothing to complain about if you're sitting in an air conditioned office right now. Right. So someone who is. um a personal injury trial lawyer from Lubbock, Texas, who happens to be the calendar's chairman in the Texas House, who passed a bill that said that cities cannot require certain things. Uh, it's an academic exercise for him. For those workers, it's a real-world thing, right? You have some conservatives making this argument that it's better for business to not have a patchwork of different regulations in different cities across the state. But I have made the case over and over again, I'll continue to make it, that in a state of 31 million people, spread across two time zones. You can't make every decision from the Capitol in Austin. There's a reason that there are political subdivisions because, and this was always a conservative thought before, that the, that those who are closest to the people govern best. Uh, you know, the, the mayor, the city council, the county commissioner, and I'm not, I'm not saying they always get everything right, but Jeremy, they're the ones that you can find in the grocery store. You know, whether you're living and, and bitch at them about whatever you want, that you don't like that they've done this or they've done that. It's, it's a lot easier for an average person to go down to City Hall if they live in the Panhandle or in South Texas or Deep East Texas. They've got a problem in their city. They want to go talk to the county commissioners. They want to talk to city council members. They can easily go do that. They may be able to easily get their cell phone numbers. I know a lot of them, they just give them out because they want to hear from people. Um, as this law goes into effect, you're going to see people be told all over the state that I don't have anything to do with that anymore. It could be on a host of issues. You know, I know you're upset about this or that. So, for example, in Houston, they have worked out a noise ordinance that the business community and different neighborhood associations and people all came together to try to solve a problem. Look, you've got construction that goes on in a city. You've got things that cause noise that can be a nuisance for people in their neighborhoods. Uh, and they had to find a delicate balance to put something in place locally that is addressed for that community's needs. And it's done in a way that's not perfect. But it's as close to perfect as they can get, you know, there while they're trying to balance all these different uh, competing interests. Um, and the state has come in and said, y'all can't do that. 
Why? What? Because – oh, because there's a white paper that came out from the Texas Public Policy Foundation, their tax-free building in downtown Austin. And it says that, look, the, the cities and counties, those are political, you know, political subdivisions of the state. They're created by the state. The state is dominant, and that's where the decisions should be made. That's an academic exercise. In the real world, we need for government at all levels to be able to address people's needs and do it in a way that's you know efficient. And I'm not saying these people always get everything right, but there's a reason that they're elected locally to make those decisions. And do you really do you really want to leave it to people in Austin who come into a legislative session with the most money the state has ever had, and six months later they still can't figure out how to do a property tax bill? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and, and I, I keep thinking like you know there was the argument made. Look, there's some you know some businesses are going to be smart and make sure there's still water breaks. Mm-hmm. But the sad thing is you still need government for the bad managers that are That's out right. there. That's there's it. so mm-hmm. many people who like all they know is they have to hit, you know, a dollar amount for the day. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, and that's what they're worried about. As like, and they can't be, they're not worried about when the last time Joe had, you know, a drink of water and nor do they care. You know, it's like, and it's like, so you have to have something in place to make them to do that sometimes. I'm not saying for every business, but there are so, clearly some businesses that are going to try to cut corners. We see it all the time. Everybody yeah, has a story of a bad manager who wasn't playing off the book and, you know, and decided to do something they shouldn't, you know, right? It's like, and, and you just can't allow that to happen, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like, and so it's, it's just a different kind of mindset. Like you said, it's like, there was a point where like, it felt like, you know, local government was the you know closest to the people, and Republicans and Democrats agreed to kind of cede power to the locals. But now it's like it's not there. You know, it's like you know you see this Republican Party is like, nope, we have the decision from Austin. You know, on how the people in El Paso and Texarkana should all have to live under the same rules. You're like, mm-hmm. what? It's like <laughs> this is a big state to have one blanket right. rule for everybody and for, think that and, we and know exactly what they're dealing with. One blanket rule for everybody and for everything. I'm not even arguing that you shouldn't have some uniformity in certain policy on, on certain policy questions. Um, you know, I think it's a I think there's a question uh, for uh, certain businesses that operate in multiple cities. I'll give you an example, uh, maybe an airline like American or Southwest and their employees might have different um, regulations that they have to work under if they land in Houston and then they land in San Antonio and then they land in Austin and back up in DFW, those employers would say that they don't need to have different rules and regulations for the way they operate every place that they operate. That's always a challenge though because these also operate in multiple states Correct. where there are different rules for everything, right? So that's a tension that's a legitimate debate. What's not legitimate is to say the state of Texas always gets everything right <laughs> because – there should everyone should have belly laughed just then. Thank you. All right. Now, on property taxes, which I mentioned, still a stalemate. At quorumreport.com this week, I described it as a legislative Vietnam. It's a quagmire with no plan to get out. What are they? <laughs> I mean, we have been stuck here for six months in the same place with no resolution, no, exactly. no, sign, no sign of resolution. Um, it's remarkable. Uh, I have heard more people say, that you have you have to have a special level of incompetence to have a record budget surplus and not be able to figure out how to give people property tax relief and how to spend that money on things like I don't know air conditioners and prisons or whatever 
They could have done they could have done anything with that money. What they promised people they were going to do is cut taxes with yep. it, right? So Chris Turner is a Democratic state representative from North Texas. He said the governor has failed to lead on the issue, plain and simple. I think ultimately the, the governor has to has to you know get everyone together and and and. and show some leadership on this. You know, frankly, uh, the House and the Senate had different property tax plans throughout the entire session. And uh, the governor didn't get involved literally till the second to last day. And I think that's why we're in the situation we're in. So I think the governor has to get engaged more uh, and, and help to help the legislature get out of this mess. To put his comments in context, I'm only going to say that the governor definitively said what he wanted uh, the solution to be on property taxes at the very end of the legislative session with about 72 hours left to go and then got even more specific in writing uh, in his proclamation calling for the first special session when he said he wanted to see a bill that solely focused on tax compression. It is highly ironic, Jeremy, that that is the plan that was offered a year ago by one of the people that Abbott defeated handily for governor in the Republican primary. I am speaking, of course, of former state Senator Don Huffines from here in Dallas. Huffines was on the Mark Davis show. A lot of DFW references today. He was on the Mark Davis show uh, on K-Sky, 660 AM here uh, in Big D. And Huffines said that the plan that Dan Patrick is pushing for homestead exemptions, he says that's not a long-term fix. There are always uh, legislators, and I learned that when I was down there, they're usually not interested very seldom in solving the problems. They're just not. That's not why they're there. And that's what Patrick's plan really just just twi- uh, tweaks around the edges. It's it's about uh, solving the the symptoms of the disease and not curing the disease. And what we need to do is just get rid of the local property tax. And that means using our state surpluses to compress the rate. So what we're going to do is buy down the rate every year for eight to 10 years until and replace it with state revenue. What he doesn't say there, and it's kind of important, is that in the next decade, there's no guarantee. And in fact, it's almost absolutely a guarantee that there will not be a record revenue surplus in this state. We are sitting on a mountain of money. It, as we talked about at the beginning of the legislative Jeremy, uh, legislative session, um, there's so much, it's hard to get your mind around how much money the state of Texas was sitting on uh, as the legislative session began. And you have all of these folks advocating for using it to using $17 billion, which it's really $12 billion because $5 billion is already built in from some of the legislation that was passed previously. It's all big numbers. But the point is that you're not going to have nearly $20 billion to do this uh, with again in two years. So you, when the governor says that he's going to put us on a path to eliminating local school property taxes, the M&O portion of it, which is the biggest portion there, you have two, two elements of it, maintenance and operations, that's the, just the ongoing cost of running your school district, and then the uh, interest and in sinking funds, that's your bonds, right? That, that's the things that you go out and vote on. Uh, that M&O is a big old chunk of your property tax bill, and Huffine says that they can use this uh, surplus to just buy it down, just, just pay it off. The problem with that is there's not always going to be a surplus. So then what would you do for that answer, you have to turn to noted liberal Dan Patrick. <laughs> Lieutenant, Ge- Lieutenant Governor Patrick, <laughs> you know, you can't make up this stuff, Jeremy. I keep saying that lately. You can't, you could try to make that, you could try to do a novelization. 
you could try to write a book, you could try to make up stuff, but it would not be this good. Lieutenant Governor Patrick, the, the spiritual leader of the Republican Party in Texas, says that what you would do if you were trying to do the Huffines plan is you would have to raise sales taxes up to 20%, which is extremely regressive. I had a business leader this week tell me that if you do that, and again, this is not a liberal either. Democrats would just say it's regressive. It's going to hurt poor people, which it would, right? But business guys would say that's an economic stimulus plan for Louisiana, Oklahoma, New Mexico, and Arkansas because people who live even in Houston and DFW would drive to those places to buy certain stuff, you know, um, 20% sales tax, absolutely insane. Absolutely ridiculous. But but here's what's interesting. The folks who have pushed that plan all along, the TPPF types, they have said we should go to consumption tax. They've said that for years, that we should get rid of property taxes. We should increase the sales taxes. What Abbott and Huffines are not saying is the second part. They're saying just buy down the property taxes with the surplus. But then they never get to the what would happen eventually, which is your sales taxes would have to go through the roof. You have to go over to the Dan Patrick press conference where he says that's insane he said, quote, it's a fantasy. It's not going to happen. I do think that there might be some light at the end of the tunnel here, Jeremy. We have seen the speaker and the lieutenant governor um, you know, not talking to each other. Uh, Patrick has been tweeting at the speaker, tweeting about the speaker. He's been talking about the speaker. The speaker hasn't said much in return. Um, we had a complete stalemate for the first legislative uh, special session. And then you had this uh, second special session that just got underway this week. And we may see some action on this after the 4th of July holiday. We'll all stay tuned now. I do think that at this point, without any specific inside knowledge, there has got to be some back-channel communication happening between these guys. They have, I mean, the, the speaker has come back from, I think, uh, the lieutenant governor said that the Phelan was out of pocket for a little while. And I think he was on some sort of a vacation for a little bit there, which he did take a vacation, and so did a lot of the House. A lot of the House members were just out. And think of it this way. As they come back to do more battle, the House is rested and ready. The Senate's been coming into Austin for the last three weeks, sort of a kabuki theater, uh, not not really working on anything but looking like they're working on stuff. Um, and so they've had to make the trip over and over again to Austin while House members have been kind of taking a break. A lot of them going to the beach. A lot of them maybe going to some cooler climate, maybe going to – New Hampshire or Maine or Oregon. You, the Oregon coast is nice this time of year. It's my understanding. <laughs> um, Vancouver, BC would be a great spot to go right now. Uh, I just, I, I, I how was far in, north can we get and will it be cool? <laughs> That's the only question. How far north? Well, how far north could you get but not, not be in the billowing smoke clouds yeah, of exactly. the Can Canadian wildfire? Yeah, which I told you all question. about when I was in when I was in Philadelphia, and in, in comes rolling this thing that looks like it turns everything into what looked like a Mad Max scene. Um, it smelled like the inside of a barbecue pit when it's not lit. It's kind of <laughs> disgusting. I just went right inside. I just went right inside and lit up a cigar because that's the smoke that I want to smell. Um, yeah, this this standoff has to come to an end, Jeremy. This is the thing that they promised everybody that they were going to do. They've got to get it done. Uh, the governor is not backing off his position. The lieutenant governor is not backing off his position. Um, Patrick is the kind of legislative leader who doesn't mind shooting a legislative hostage. By that, I mean you know killing certain pieces of legislation. Um, and so I, I have said before, I don't think that Patrick really cares if someone else shoots the hostage. Because he, because he sees all of it as you know, potential collateral damage. 
but they do have to get this done. My guess is that I'll just say it this way. If they have not come to some resolution or if there's not real movement on this issue by the middle of July, say the 15th or that – how about the week of the 17th? It's the third full week in July. If they haven't gotten to it by then, then you will know the nuclear reactor is on fire. That the you know the, the, this is not ha- this is just completely blown up, you know, the spent rods are <laughs> are causing uh, health issues for everybody in the vicinity. What do you think? Yeah, this is like it's crazy how they've messed this up. You know, it's just like again, everybody agreed this is what they were supposed to do, and, and they failed in the session. They failed in the first special, and now we're in the second special, and they're telling me, "It's like, oh, like, but look, this is what we're doing." You know, it's it exciting what we just passed. And it's like, no, we're all bored. <laughs> you have bored the hit, you know, the daylights out of everybody yes. in Texas. They don't see anything coming. You're saying the same words that you said in January, and there's nothing coming. You know, there's right. nothing that anybody has passed at this point. Point. And guess what? The, the the tax rates are about to get set again. It's mm-hmm. like you know, it, it, we're we're heading into August when like all the school districts and all these cities and counties start setting their tax rates, and like people are going to see these rates getting set, and there's no tax release coming from the legislature, which was the only thing they needed to do. <laughs> They're right. sitting on so much money; it's one easy hit. But because they can't agree on what kind. Rather than just accept some level of it and then add to it later or whatever, they decided, nope, it's got to be all or nothing my way. You know, we got to fight about each other. We got to have memes about each other. We got to tweet about each other. We got to just be, you know, go through all this. And look, most of the, you know, the the populace out there and not just the voters has moved on. They don't think anything's coming. You've right. pissed them all off. Even when you come up with a deal, that people are going to look back and go, y'all spent six months working on this thing. It's like, how hard Maybe, yeah. is it to say, here's your money back? <laughs> it's literally all they have to do. Here's your money back. There's one point where when I was talking to Governor Abbott last year, he yeah. said, I don't know, maybe we should do a rebate thing where we maybe oh, we yeah. could even send mm-hmm. money back. And it's just like to me that now that seems the most well, rational thing they could have just yeah. send the money back. Even though it's yeah, even though it's a terrible idea, and the reason is that you remember that that was floated, um, I believe, last session as a, a way to do some kind of property tax uh, gimmick, some yeah. kind of scheme to say, hey, okay, hey, let, let's give people uh, five hundred bucks or something. Yeah, but the problem everybody- with that is. Well, I was going to say the problem with it is the way that our tax system is structured. If you if the state of Texas sent you a check, it would be taxable income. Yeah, and that's exactly. why they dropped it. That's why they dropped it because we don't have an income tax. If we had an income tax, they could send you a check and call it a rebate. But yeah. it doesn't work because all of this money is coming from different sources: your property taxes, you've got your uh, you get the revenue that comes in from Correct. sales taxes, um, and so it really is just a mess. But I am going to uh, give everyone this reminder. This is maybe in my coverage of the legislature. This might be the biggest "I told you so" of my career, which is at the beginning of the session. You remember, people were acting like this is going to be easy. They've got all this money. That property tax relief will be a it'll be a breeze. And at that time, you can go back and listen to the shows from January. And I was saying they will be fighting about this the entire session. The only thing I got wrong is that they would need two special sessions to get <laughs> to get this all sorted out. The, 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 it's, the, it's really it, it really is um, not just a question of policy preferences, but the egos of these people. They have got yeah. to at some point, and I had a state senator say this to me the other day, um, a Republican who said that the, the main problem right now 
with getting this done is nobody wants to be blamed, right? Yep. Nobody wants to take the blame. But the governor is calling them immediately back into special session because he, he, does, you know, he doesn't want to take the blame. And he easily could say, hey, you know what? I'm going to let you all, all cool off for a while. Take a month off. The, the leadership will continue to stay here in Austin working and trying to you know try to broker a tax uh, deal. Uh, and in the meantime, you uh, can go be with your families, go to your districts. They the legislators need to go to their districts and hear from from the people in their communities about this issue and other issues. That's a very po- important part of being a legislator as well. And at this point, I heard from another lawmaker just this week who said, "You know what? Don't call me into uh, the session." Um, you know, when when you don't really want my ideas and all you want is my vote, when you're ready for me to vote on something, I'll come back. Well, well and, and, and I think what I didn't expect to happen so much and like, you know, the longer this went on, the, the more it's like intertwined the legacies of, you know, politicians into this. Like specifically, you look at somebody like Dan Patrick. He doesn't have a lot more sessions left in him. And here's yep. a chance for him to kind of really kind of set a legacy issue of mm-hmm. what he wanted to get down. He's always said he wanted to get the hun- the hundred, you know, thousand dollar or the uh, uh, hundred thousand dollar, you know, homestead exemption. Yep. That was always his goal. And it's like here he has a chance to kind of get this legacy moment, right? Abbott has this like promising us you know, historic tax cut. So he wants to do it. And he's been talking about compression on and off, you know, mm-hmm. and it's always been his kind of baby, even if he didn't fully express it you know, loudly enough to the legislature. Right. So, sure. so now, now we have these guys like in this legacy mode of like, you know, this, I don't have many sh- more shots at this, but this is, this is literally what your career can kind of be known for, you know, even past your time in office. And it's like, and so that's kind of got intertwined in this stuff. And I think that's what's happened. It's no longer just about the numbers. It's about mm-hmm. who's going to get credit for this. How right. am I going to be able to use this in the future? Is this my last session? How yeah. can I use it against you in the next session? You know, if I can't, you know, it's like, and so all these other things have kind of got intertwined into this politics of a very simple issue, which is give me my money back. <laughs> you know, and, th- and thinking about that as a legacy issue, uh, consider this, the, the governor, and I, I, this isn't even me taking a, a real position on one plan or the other. Um, all, I, and I actually think both plans have been pluses and minuses. Yeah. Um, but as a legacy issue, Patrick would be the one who would actually be putting something in the Texas Constitution forever. Yeah. Right. The, for the homestead exemption, if you raise it to 100000 We've talked about this. If you raise it up that high, you take that much money off the tax rolls um, that goes in the Texas Constitution and people in this state, when they vote on raising the homestead exemption, they do it to the tune of like 86 percent is the yes vote. Right? They are never – if they put it in the constitution, they're never going to vote the opposite, which would be, hey, oh, you know, we have a tough budget year and we need you to take the homestead exemption down to 50000 People are never going to agree to that. Um, for, for Abbott – there's no permanence to any of that to, 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 you know, to shoot your shot, as they say, and spend $17 billion on a one-time buy-down of property taxes with some promise in the future to zero out M&O property tax. That's just a pipe dream. That's not going to be forever. That's going to be for two years, right? That's, that's, um, that's not legacy thinking, but you're right. He may be thinking of it that way. Um, all right. Uh, so speaking of Abbott, I was going to – I know I'm going to get – uh, or I know that I would get some ugly notes from people if I didn't mention this at least. Did you see that Abbott on his Twitter page um, tweeted out a, a news story, a fake news story, 
and it should have told him something that it was from the Dunning-Kruger Times. <laughs> God. <laughs> I can't believe this. The, the I know. So he, tw- he tweeted out this deal about Garth Brooks being booed off the stage at the 123rd annual Texas Country Jamboree, which, Jeremy, I know that you're a country music aficionado, yeah. so you go to that You go to that every year, right? <laughs> yeah, on, on, my, on my unicorn that I fly up to this imaginary city every year. There's this picture that goes along with the story. Uh, it's in Abbott's tweet, uh, which, again, Abbott tweeted – he tweeted this and then he deleted it pretty quick. But the internet is forever. There's a picture of Garth Brooks kind of hunched over – on a stage, and uh, people are supposedly booing at him. Uh, and the tweet from Abbott says, Garth Brooks is booed off the stage at the 123rd annual Texas Country Jamboree. Go woke, go broke. He, he goes on to say, Garth called his conservative fans, quote, assholes, close quote. This is the governor of Texas. Um, and then he said, good job, Texans. Now, show prep these days often has me um, asking the internet what conservatives are mad about today or why they're mad at a certain thing. And I didn't know anything about it. Why? Why? Because I don't care to be just angry all the time. Why Why are people mad at Garth Brooks? I mean, we're talking about friends in low places. Yeah. Papa love mama. Mm. The beaches of Cheyenne is actually my favorite from uh, from Garth. The live version of that was incredible. Remember when the, uh, the back and back when they had back when remember back when CDs were going to be the only way we ever listened to music after of that. Of course, <laughs> yep. <laughs> and it's such a, in in the grand scheme, it's such a short lived way to you know. I mean, people are still buying. My daughter buys records now. People have gone back yep. to vinyl, which is cool actually. You know, we were there buying her um, uh, a couple of years ago. She was getting into vinyl, and we were buying uh, you know the turntable and everything. So I said, "Is this really what you want?" Yeah. So I, I went to the answer box, I went to Google, and I typed in, why are conservatives mad at Garth Brooks? Did you know the answer, Jeremy, about about the controversy? No. no, I don't know why they would be mad at him at this point. Well, it's like you need one of those conspiracy theory uh, pegboards that you talked about, um, the cork board where you put up uh, the different pictures and you put the yarn you know, from this picture to that picture to connect certain dots. Um, and what it, here's what it is. You do remember that conservatives and Fox News viewers were very angry with Bud Light for uh, this controversy over a transgender celebrity online promoting Bud Light. Yep. And you know that it wasn't some sustained campaign by Bud Light. It was just that they sent a single can of Bud Light to lots of celebrities in the hopes that they would talk about it. This was the idea from somebody at Bud Light. And man, that one went south on them. The people who drink Bud Light are not the most discerning folks. <laughs> I think if you liked, if you liked, if you really liked it, here's the thing. This is this is just my brief comment about Bud Light. <laughs> if you if you really liked a beverage, it wouldn't matter what anyone on Twitter said about it. You'd keep drinking it, right? If you really cared that much, but Bud Light, I mean that, and that was the number one beer in America. And now, interesting. Now it's Modelo. Did you know that it, it, it surpassed? Bud Light, for a variety of reasons, it was you know it was, it was coming on strong, uh, you know it, popularity was increasing, and then Bud Light had this big PR disaster. Well, Garth Brooks, okay, you got to go back to the corkboard. So 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 here you have Bud Light is now the target of everyone's anger, and Garth Brooks is opening a bar in Nashville, 
And as a show of solidarity with the LGBTQ community, Garth Brooks announced that his beer would proudly sell Bud Light. So now, so now they want to cancel Greg Abbott. This go woke, go broke thing is actual cancel culture. That we kept hearing about cancel culture from conservatives for years now. But when they say go woke, go broke, they mean if, if you don't agree with me, you shouldn't be able to make a living. That's what, yeah. that, that's what that means, right? So another person pointed out to me that the fact that he's going to sell Bud Light at his bar, you know, as, as, a, as a sign of being an ally to LGBTQ people, it's probably the lowest bar possible for being an ally to people is that you're going to sell a certain kind of beer at your bar. <laughs> So he's got he's got people who are <laughs> he's got people who are more liberal kind of agitated at him because all he's doing is selling Bud Light. He's got Republicans mad at him because he's going to sell Bud Light at this bar. I don't know if he's still going to sell the Bud Light after the controversy, you know, uh, this time around. But I started to think about, and we have done some psychoanalysis of Greg Abbott on this show before. Maybe he really was sort of desperate to have anybody else booed off the stage. You were there in Conroe, remember? Let's go back. To Montgomery County, this is just last year. It feels like ten years ago. Yeah, uh, it was Trump, Trump rally, Trump rally, uh, where Abbott was nearly booed off the stage. I will say, in fairness, not by everybody, but there were some people who were really mad at him. Right? Is that fair, Jeremy? You were that on the scene. That is absolutely a fair assessment. Not everybody was booing, but man, right. the people who were booing were really close to the microphones. <laughs> right, and we don't have to even rely on your memory of it. Listen to it. Here it is. So he had a little bit of a weekend. Um, it, it wasn't the warmest welcome. And he fought through it, Jeremy, by simply repeating Trump's name over and over again. They were there for a Trump rally. And part of what he was there to do was introduce the former president. Are you ready for Donald J. Trump? <laughs> Donald J. Trump is ready for you. Donald J. Trump loves the great state of Texas. And Texans love President Donald J. Trump. He is getting ready to come out here and he wants to see you show your support for our President Donald J. Trump. How many times did he actually say Trump's name? That was just a portion of it, Jeremy. It, it went on for a while. Yeah, it was 26 times. <laughs> I counted it. When, it. when he first started up, I'm like, I'm going to start counting these down. It was like 26 times in this tiny little speech. Yeah. And to me, it felt like it was it was a nice way to kind of stop them from booing, right? Like, right. Just, if I say Trump, they won't boo. <laughs> I love know? Trump. I love Trump. I love Trump. I think they might have actually been anticipating that he would get booze there because we were in the middle of, you know, primary season. Uh, you had Governor Abbott up against Huffines, who we mentioned before, Alan West, and entertainer Chad Prather. Um, and you remember that Abbott also avoided the Republican convention, the state convention in Houston. And the yeah. chatter at the time was that he thought he was going to get booed, and he had a good reason for that. You know, for thinking that, because they did try to boo John Cornyn off the stage. But these are the people who are the elder statesmen of the Republican Party in this state. 
and they are sort of in the political sights of uh, the grassroots activists uh, in the state. And, you know, Cornyn said he didn't care. Cornyn told people at the convention after they were booing him, he stepped off stage and he told some folks who relayed the information to me. He said, you know, I've never given into uh, mobs before. I've never given into a mob mentality before, and I'm not going to start now. So yeah. I tweeted that out, and someone said, oh, that's a made-up quote. You didn't hear him say that. And then John Cornyn retweeted it. So I think it was, <laughs> I think it was a solid, solid source. Um, look, this whole thing, it's, it's outrage. It's what we started the show with. It's always trying to be outraged about something. Not only is he maybe, you know, maybe my psychoanalysis is a little off. Maybe, maybe he doesn't need to have Garth Brooks booed because he got booed, whatever. But, but it is, Jeremy, this desire, this need to always be on the attack all the time. Because if you're not playing into what the outrage industry wants you to be playing into, then you're not speaking to the base of the Republican Party. Yeah. Right. I mean, he, He's doing the Ron DeSantis thing. He's doing the Trump thing. He saw something that looked bad for this guy. Garth Brooks is being accused of being woke, and he had to jump on that as soon as he could. Yeah, it's just, you better you better be paying attention daily to what you're hearing on Fox News, uh, just so you can be able to answer the question. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, and you hear so many Republicans who just aren't prepared for that and can't. You know, handle. You, you, we're seeing in some of the, the presidential candidates are struggling with that. You know, what's mm-hmm. the right word to use in this moment? How do I like, you know, make sure the crowd, you know, roars for me and doesn't just go what? <laughs> well, they're all trying to do the Trump thing, but the the issue is they're not him. Right? Yeah. I mean, when when Trump was there, he could get people whipped up every morning changing the subject with what he would put out on Twitter. The, the, the news media was reactive to that. He would, he, you know, he would get ahead of the whole day. He would, uh, he would put out his topic of the day on social media early, right, at 5 a.m. or 6 a.m. What he, the thing, he would set the table for the national discussion, and it would always be something different. These guys can't move that quick. And here's the other thing. This is just a little free advice for these guys. You don't have to be pissed about every single thing. Pick two or three things to be really mad about. Do a campaign the way that you would have done it before. Have the big major messages that you're doing, and you've got your message calendar, right? Put that together. And be mad about the things that people are actually mad about. And and here's the other thing. Because there's a new topic every day to be mad about, a week from now, nobody will remember what was going on with Garth Garth Brooks. Yeah. Right? Who would care what happened? I I, I blame it all on the grassroots. I showed up in boots. (laughs) You could do the whole thing. Uh, I'll I'll come up with something. There you go. I'll tweet out some lyrics later. All right. All right. Thanks. That's enough show, isn't it? Yes. Fill the tank. If I'm making up a, a a Garth Brooks song. Yeah. That's enough. (laughs) Thanks to our producer, Evan Scherer. You need to check out uh, Jeremy's newsletter. Again, it is the pinned tweet at the top of his uh, Twitter page, and he is at Jeremy S. Wallace, at Jeremy S. Wallace. I'm at Scott Braddock. You should subscribe at quorumreport.com and houstonchronicle.com, and we will see you next time.